welcome to this latest edition of Combinations, the podcast from North Staffordshire Combined Healthcare NHS Trust. One of the main reasons why we created this podcast is to give a platform for patient and service user stories to be heard in their own voices. Nothing is as powerful as hearing a patient or service user story, and few will be more powerful than the episode you're about to hear. Thea Costa tells a story of living secretly in a marriage involving domestic abuse, a determined suicide attempt to escape that life, how she was saved and her life turned around. It is a powerful and sometimes upsetting story, but ultimately one that has a tale of recovery at the end of it. If you or anyone close to you are affected by any of the issues contained in this podcast and need to speak to somebody, then our Access Crisis Helpline is available 24-7, 365 days a year for all ages by phoning 0300 123 0907 and selecting option one. So my name is Thea Costa. I'm 62 years old, mother of three, grandmother of eight. Um, I first became a service user just over six years ago now, although it seems in one way forever and in another way it seems like only yesterday. I come from an ethnic minority background, I'm Greek Cypriot, marriage is forever. And you most certainly don't talk about domestic abuse. I was the pillar of the community. I fronted so many committees. I was president of our Greek school, president of the ladies auxiliary committee. I was the go-to person for the community whenever they needed help with anything. But behind closed doors, I lived a very different life. I was in an abusive marriage. I had a lot of problems. A lot of them centered around financial difficulties. I started creating a life that wasn't really real. I was creating this life in order to make my husband at the time feel better. I had two sons and a daughter and I never ever wanted my sons to be aware of what was going on in the home. I wanted them to believe that everything was good and everything was fine and that you treated women with respect, not the way I was being treated. So I carried on this life with the intention of always, of when the time was right, when my children were grown up, when they were married and in their own homes, with their own families, never occurred to me to leave my husband. I was going to take my life. It was completely pre-planned, 
premeditated to the very last detail. So I went ahead and executed this plan. I booked myself into a hotel. I didn't want any of my family to find me. I filled the hotel room with photographs of my family. And I sat down at a desk in that room and I wrote letters to everybody. I took with me a pestle and water and I took with me, I'd suffered with sciatica so I had a lot of medication at home. I took it all with me. And because it wasn't a cry for help, I intended to take my life. I put all these tablets in this pestle and mortar and I ground them. And then I put them into some yogurt because I couldn't take tablets. How strange is that? I sat on the bed, I prayed, I ate all this yogurt with the tablets in, I crossed myself, which is the biggest sign of our faith, and I put myself in the fetal position, and I remember doing that, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to die now. That was the last thing I remember. I was unconscious, I was found because I'd posted my house keys into the house as I left. And when my ex-husband got back home from work late at night, he fell over these keys. And although he realized it was strange he took himself off to bed. But my children, he rang to see if I was with them. Realised that this isn't right. This was early hours of the morning. And they didn't find me. They got in touch with the police. And the police traced me with my very old Nokia, little tiny phone and an ambulance was called and I was blue lighted to hospital. The doctors told my children, my family, that I had a 20% chance of survival. All my organs, bar my heart, were shutting down. But five weeks later, I regained consciousness. I opened my eyes and I was surrounded by my family. And I remember thinking, oh, isn't this lovely? At this point, I couldn't speak. I had a tracheostomy fitted. I couldn't move my arms and I couldn't move my legs. 
gain somebody that knew me would have known that this would have been horrendous. But it didn't feel horrendous. I still didn't realise fully what I'd done. But I knew why I'd done something bad. The day after I was rushed into hospital and the night of being rushed in, my ex-husband came to see me. My children were trying to find the packaging of the tablets that I'd taken, the hospital needed to know. And so they went through the bins at home. And in the bins, they found lots of letters, a lot of which I hadn't opened, a lot which had been opened, final demands for bills, for some loans I'd taken out to keep up this pretense of whatever I was doing. At that point he realised we didn't have all this money that I pretended that we did have. And so that was, that was the end, literally, of that. The second that he found out about that, he never wanted to know me again. So I was homeless. I couldn't go back to my house. I couldn't look after myself. I had no means of taking care of this house. But thank the Lord, I had very good children. And my son-in-law said to my daughter, your mum's always been there for us. Now it's our turn to come move in with us. And that's what happened. So whilst I was in the North Staffs, my daughter spoke to a psychiatrist at the hospital and he felt that it would do me good to be admitted to the Harplands if I so wished and if she so wished. My instant reaction was, oh yes, definitely, I'll go, because it will all be part of my punishment for all the bad things that I've done. It was New Year's Eve, and from 10 o'clock in the morning, I was made ready to be transported to the Harplins. there wasn't an ambulance available to take me. And although my children were at the hospital, they weren't allowed to take me. So all day long, I waited. And my children waited. And now it's New Year's Eve. So by the time they get me out of the ward and and down the corridors and into the ambulance and through to the Harplins. It's just before midnight. And all the residents were gathered into the day room to see in the new year. 
And when they took me in there, there were some ladies who were distressed and there were some who were just shouting. I was petrified. I was so afraid. And I can't say that anybody was unkind because they weren't. They were all doing their job. But that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Nobody should be moved in the middle of the night to be placed into a psychiatric hospital. Now, I couldn't walk. I couldn't look after myself. But there was no ensuite like there was in my hospital room. And because I'd had a catheter fitted for six weeks, I had a very weak bladder. I could barely find my way to the toilet. I had no sense of direction. I could sit on the toilet, but I couldn't get up. I didn't have the strength to get up. And I was in this cubicle. I was shouting, help, help. until somebody came. Again, somebody who has physical disabilities shouldn't be in a room without a toilet. It shouldn't happen. On that first night, the smell in that room was horrendous was awful and the only thing I could think to do was to pull the covers up over my nose try to stop the smell in the morning when a nurse came in she said was everything all right last night I said oh yes yes it was fine it was fine you don't complain you don't have the right to complain You've been a bad person, so you don't say anything. You deserve all this. These were the things that were going on in my mind. But I did say to her, I said, smelling here is really bad. I said, oh, do you know we have cleaned this carpet because one of the patients was urinating on the floor a lot. What do you say? What do you say to that? She did move me to another room. But that shouldn't have happened either. These may seem as very small things. But to somebody who is going through trauma, who's frightened and distressed, they're not small things. And you could even think to yourself, well, what gives you the right? to demand an ensuite bathroom. It isn't a case of demanding that. 
it's all part of making whoever the patient is feel human. That was the most negative thing. From there, I met the home team, the mental health home team. They were incredible. And I then found a support network that has stood me in the greatest, greatest, greatest stead. The social worker came into my life. She opened up so many doors for me. She earned my trust. And for about a year and a half, she knew that there was something I wasn't discussing with her. And very slowly, she did get it out of me. And from there, she introduced me to the Sunrise Centre in Hanley. It was run by Arch, who specialised in domestic abuse. I realised I wasn't alone because at this point my husband was going around saying that I'd stolen a million pounds <laughs> a million pounds but I, start, I completed all the courses at Arch and I found that the girls within the class were really turning to me. Whether it's because I was older or it's the mum in me or whether they really could feel that everything I was saying was just genuine. I needed to help others. I needed to be the voice of the people who were like I was before, living a secret, wearing a mask, being afraid to speak, being afraid of being judged. I felt as if I was laid bare in front of everybody, naked without protection. But I found my voice through Arch. And once I'd completed all my courses, I was invited to deliver the classes. It was a massive, massive, massive step. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And from there, I started exploring other areas. And one thing led to another, to another, to another. And I was invited to speak at Keele University to bring my story out and I had this fear that they're going to be so bored listening to me what are they going to want to hear and at the end of it when I'd finished 
the entire room stood up and gave me a standing ovation. Me. That was very strange. And from there, the phone calls started. Would I be willing to speak to this group and would I be willing to speak to that group? And everywhere I went, I realised that as a service user, what I had to say did matter and people were listening. I was then approached by Staffordshire University who offered me a position with them to help with the students who want to train as social workers. And this is where I find myself now. I feel as if my life has gone full circle. And I know that although there's been hard times, that the trust has a lot to offer people. The biggest thing is everybody needs to be willing to listen and show empathy, not sympathy, empathy. I think I've told you what I want to tell you. It could well be that somebody is listening to this podcast at the moment who is could be in a similar situation where where you were all those years ago mm. and that that if, if, if you could say something oh. to that person or even say something to your former self yeah what would you say oh i would say please don't hide please don't hide and don't feel alone because you're not you're so not there's a whole system there's a whole system out there geared to help just speak to one person one person and whoever that may be they will point you in the right direction do not attempt to end your life because you've got so much to live for and your life will turn around in a way you would never dream of when I walked into Staffordshire University on the 28th of August it was our first meeting as a member of their team it felt surreal it felt incredible and it felt almost like I'd come home. That's what I would say. Yeah. Speak. Speak. Don't hide.